Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen. First, I would like to say, before I launch into a discussion in English, that I hope very much we have a discussion, a discussion which will include not only questions, but also, if need be, polemical comments. And I also hope that you feel free to, to ask those questions or to make those comments, either in Russian or in English. Now, my theme is Gogol and the Grotesque. Uh, no, I prefer to stand, actually. <laughs> yes, I think I have a little trouble reading what I wrote here, but um, I would have had in this trouble anyway. Um, now, um, perhaps I should start my um, inevitably schematic discussion of this vast subject by making one of the few non-controversial non statements that can be made about Google. Gogol is one of the most controversial major figures in Russian literature. While, at least since his death, the magnitude of his achievement has not been at issue, the nature of his genius is still a matter of controversy. We are still far from an agreement about the word the texture of Gogol's world, about the general drift of his art, we still as baffled, or nearly as baffled as his contemporaries were, by his life, which is even stranger than his art. For here was a man who, on the whole, was as inept and self-destructive in real life especially in personal relations, as he was compelling and spectacular in his writings. And yet, this man came dangerously close to renouncing the only source of his power, literature, on the eve of his strange death. And here was a writer whom the most influential critic of his day, Gilinski, hailed as an intimate champion of social justice, only to stigmatize him only a few years later as an abject psychophant, an apologist for the Tsarist establishment. And here was a moralist who, in his most euphoric moments, viewed himself and was viewed by some as a religionary visionary as a seer, and who to Lev Tolstoy was merely a small and fearful mind. And perhaps most importantly, here was an artist who was pronounced a founder and a main exponent of social realism in Russian fiction, but who to Vladimir Nabokov, and indeed quite a few of us, was primarily a, a wacky prose poet of genius. It goes without saying that in dealing with so baffling a career, so contradiction-ridden, contradiction and controversy-ridden a personality, no single term, no single label would do. But if we are to search for a word, for a concept, 
for a key term that can bring us closer to the nature of Gogol's imagination, I believe the best we can do is to say grotesque. Now, um, I realize that by saying this, at the outset of my remarks, I'm already taking sides in the still going Gogol controversy. And I indicate by implication that I disagree with those who view Gogol as a Russian Dickens, not that Dickens did not have a proclivity for the grotesque, but those Russian critics or readers who like to speak of Gogol as a Russian Dickens generally don't see it. That uh, I disagree with those who view Gogol as a Russian Dickens, meaning, rather misleadingly, a cross between a humorist and a social realist, and that I also, perhaps even more emphatically, refuse to see that souls as perhaps a more exuberant <coughs> Russian version of Uncle Tom's cabin. Now, uh, what do we mean, however, when we say the grotesque? I suppose, at the risk of being abstract for a few minutes, I might be allowed to take some time out for a little terminological inquiry. The grotesque up, grotesque up to a point is a self-explanatory word. We use it in everyday parlance as a rough equivalent of, or as representing a cluster of such qualities as wild, bizarre, preposterous. Uh, in dealing with works of art, whether painting or literary works, we usually suggest, when we speak about the grotesque, a proclivity for creative deformation, for distortion of the actual. Yet, I'm not sure that we are all fully aware of the literary aesthetic implications of the term. And that is why, before I... Um, set out to explore briefly the grotesque strain in Gogol, I would like to turn for a minute or two toward an important book, one of the most important books of its kind, I believe, which embodies the most sophisticated extent attempt to redefine the grotesque, or to rather establish the grotesque as a full-fledged literary and aesthetic category. I'm referring to a book first written in, in German and recently translated into English, a book by Wolfgang Kaiser, The Grotesque in Art and Literature. Um, no, oh, not saying it is, no. it's fine. It's, it's, it's fine, thank you. Oh no, this is just this is just fine. This is just fine. This is just fine. Now uh, Wolfgang Kaiser tries to redefine the grotesque, or rather I should say in his attempt to redefine the grotesque, Kaiser ranges widely over the last five centuries of literary and art history, from Hieronymus Bosch through Goya to the Surrealists, 
Chirico, Max Ernst, Salvador Dali, and in literature from Bonaventura, E.T.A. Hoffman, Edgar Allan Poe to Kafka and Morgenstern. Since Gogol is mentioned by Kaiser only in passing and in another rather trivial connection, I found it very interesting and significant that Kaiser's generalizations should fit Gogol so closely. Indeed, it is my contention that if Kaiser's conceptual scheme, in other words, if his view of the grotesque is valid, few masters of world literature represent the grotesque imagination more fully or more boldly than does Gogol. Let me cite some of the major phases of Kaiser's, Kaiser's elaborate argument. A. Already the Renaissance sensed in the grotesque more than the whimsically funny and the or the exuberantly fantastic. There was clearly something disturbing and uncanny about a world in which the laws governing our reality no longer operate. A world which blurs the boundaries between disparate realms of existence, such as the animal and the human, which plays havoc with statics, symmetry, and relative size. I quote literally. <coughs> to the 18th century German aesthetician Wieland, the emotional effect of a grotesque work of art was a reaction compounded of laughter at, at the preposterous, and disgust over the monsters and the ugly, yet dominated by the feeling of perplexity, of terror and helplessness, which sets in when the world gets off its rails. This bafflement, argues Kaiser, is not only a matter of precarious intellectual control over the situation, but, and perhaps more importantly, of a mounting emotional disorientation and confusion. In discussing the work of that archetypal grotesque artist, Hieronymus Bosch, Kaiser makes a significant point. The painting lacks any clear-cut emotional perspective. The lack of effect is confusing and uncanny. Faced with bizarre goings-on, which are terrifying and ludicrous at the same time, the viewer does not receive any instructions as to what attitude he should take. In discussing grotesque literary narratives, Kaiser remarks, when the discrepancy between the treatment of the subject and the tone required by its nature exceeds the human measure and becomes inhuman or non-human, alienation, verfremdung, sets in, and we are losing firm ground under our feet. <coughs> the motive of disarray, of chaos, indeed of the absurd, recurs in a crucial distinction between the satirical and the grotesque mode. Why the grotesque can have a satirical edge or intent, and the satire can use as its vehicle a grotesque caricature, e.g. Uh, Goya or, if I may anticipate, Gogol. The grotesque artist's perspective is fundamentally different from a mere satirist's. The latter's, more often than not, is indirectly positive, 
it is potentially positive, since it implies the possibility of moral improvement through strategically aimed social criticism. In the realm of the grotesque, the disillusionment is complete and incurable, says Kaidel. The world is a madhouse. And finally, the grotesque images are a play with the absurd. This play may appear gay and lighthearted, but the element of terror of helplessness is bound to creep in. I believe we are ready now to return to Gogol. Or have we been away at all? Blurring the boundaries between disparate spheres of existence, playing havoc with symmetry, havoc with symmetry and relative size of objects, a ground slipping under our feet, a world as a madhouse, aren't these remarkably accurate if unwitting descriptions of the Gogolian manner and the Gogolian universe? First, a few words about what I would like to call the fluidity of boundaries in, in the Gogolian world. It is testimony to the topsy-turvy nature of the world which, which bears Gogol's signature that the motive of metamorphosis should loom so large in it. When laws of nature, generally respected by realistic fiction, are whimsically kicked about, when fundamental distinctions, such as those between the human and the subhuman, the whole and the part, the animate and the inanimate, are intermittently disregarded, abrupt, unmotivated shifts from one state of being to another become a part of the game. In Gogol's Ukrainian, that is frankly romantic tales, where witchcraft uh, reigns supreme, the mechanism of such transformation is provided by black magic. At a moment's notice, bad stepmothers turn into black cats and then into sinister-looking mermaids, the Maynite, Maiske Nochiliutopnitsa. Devils into pigs, Srachinska Yarmorka. Middle-aged village bells into part-time witches, Nochpridrasdistvon. Uh, um, dazzling young witches into decrepit old women who, when beaten to death, turn back into beauties, now, alas, rather dead. That, uh, uh, you, re you remember this uh, striking sequence in V. But um, not only in Gogol's Ukrainian period, also in his later, pseudo-realistic plots. Strange things keep happening. Those stories are not free from magic, either. They are not free from the intrusion of the demonic or the irrational. After Mirishkovsky's and Nabokov's spirited disquisitions, it is hardly necessary to insist on the major part played by Chort, the devil, in all stages of Gogol's career. Let's recall that relatively little known, but a remarkably characteristic St. Petersburg tale, Nevsky Prospect, which starts as a sober sociological reportage, only to usher or culminate in that memorable scene 
where our old friend the devil lights the lamps of, e of an eerie fog-bound city so as to review everything not as it is. To quote the author. And thus to dangerously blur the boundary, another boundary to go between reality and illusion. The motive of metamorphosis acquires here a new twist. The blending of various planes of reality is often achieved not through actual transformation, but through self-deception or a schizophrenic delusion of grandeur. In Niewski Prospekt, the artist dreamer Piskaryov is tricked by the false glitter of the avenue lamps, lighted by the evil one, into mistaking an attractive streetwalker for a heavenly apparition. In Zapiski Sumashetshevo, a madman's diary, a pathetic petty clerk for whom madness becomes an escape from crushing anonymity, fancies himself a king of Spain. Incidentally, in the same tale, a curious example of the pathological grotesque, the distinction between the human and the non-human is deftly eliminated as two dogs or two pups engage in a rather elaborate and gossipy correspondence bearing on the futility of Papristian's courtship of the boss's daughter. The letters incidentally exchanged by the, the, between the pups contain some pungent Gregorian <coughs> characterizations. Now, in this particular story, the strange goings-on can be said to be motivated by the diarist's mounting insanity. Such motivation, however, is, or any such motivation, is missing from that burlesque extravaganza, the nose, where, where as we recall, Major Kovalev's nose suddenly disappears from his owner's smoothly shaven face, only to acquire an independent existence for a while, and more importantly, an independent rank, which ironically is superior to the Major's. To be outranked by one's own nose is something which shouldn't happen to a dog. Now, the SKP, that is a fugitive nose, as you recall, is seen at some point strutting up and down the Nevsky Prospect in the uniform of a councillor of state. An unusually strange event, to quote the narrator, which is treated by everyone in the story, inclu including the temporarily bereaved and outranked young man on the make, as socially awkward, as embarrassing, rather than fantastic. In Dead Souls, the cheap agency of metamorphosis, however short-lived, is the novel's magnificently exuberant, disheveled style. Time and again, the extravagant similes, the wild metaphors are projected into the plot. Figures of speech taken literally become events. As um, one of the finest authorities on Gogol, Dmitry Chizhevsky, puts it, after beginning a simile, Gogol seems to forget about it, and a strange process takes place. A vendor of hot meat, who was first likened to a samovar, turns into a samovar. Chichikov into a fortress, and Piotr Pietrovich into a watermelon. 
Now, you, apropos uh, um, Chichikov and the fortress, you recall this rather hilarious scene in which uh, Irate Nozdrov attacks and tries to beat the hell out of Chichikov. They had a little altercation. First, Chichikov is quite appropriately compared to a besieged fortress. Then, Gogol characteristically said, the fortress was so frightened that, and so on. Now, speaking about watermelon, there is this remarkable passage about Karobuchkas entering the sleeping town of N. You recall the rather vivid and truly Gogolian description of her carriage. It was in truth more like a fat-cheeked, fat uh, after some other potential comparisons are eliminated, it was in truth more like a fat-cheeked, very round watermelon set upon wheels. <laughs> now then, Gogol uh, proceeds to say, the cheeks of this melon close very poorly, owing to the bad state of the handles and locks. And so on. By the same token, Sabakevich seems to be not so much a bear-like individual as a medium-sized bear which does his best to look like a stolid landowner. The, the boundary between the human and the animal is fluid. So is the line between the animate and the inanimate. The tendency to extend the characteristics and mannerisms of the protagonists into, his, in, uh, into the physical environment which he dominates works both ways. You remember, I'm sure, that every chair, table and chair in Sobakevich's house seems to proclaim, I am Sobakevich too. Yet this relationship, in view of Sobakevich's uh, stolidity and indeed spiritual deadness, could be reversed. And it, would be n it wouldn't be quite inappropriate to treat Sobakevich as the central or the most strategic piece of furniture in his peculiarly homogeneous household. Not only do disparate spheres of reality overlap and blend into each other, within each of these realms, one can often discern creative distortions. Time and again, the relative size, the natural dimension of objects, people, and events is exaggerated, magnified beyond recognition by Gogol's favorite stylistic device, the hyperbole. Examples of Gogol's addiction to this figure of speech are so numerous and varied that I had better exercise the rather un-Gogolian restraint in deploying them. Gogol, as André Bierle so aptly put it, resolves earth into ether and dung and humanity into giants and dwarfs. No normal-sized people are found in this universe. Whether dithyrambic or debunking, satirical or rhetorical, his prose is always bent on magnifying, overstating, exaggerating. Most of us will remember the extravagant eulogy of the Ukrainian knight, his knights of Ukraine, and so on, and his much anthologized ode to the Dnieper, Chudy Dnieper, Pritihoi Pagodi, and so on. In that <coughs> Cossack historical romance, Taras Bulba, the burly hero Superman, hacks to pieces in one blow scores of enemies. In the same novel, a million of people trembled. 
This is a reference to the crowd which gathered in a square, a public square in the 16th century Warsaw. Now, obviously, it is uh, uh, not uh, 16th century Warsaw. There are a few million people. If we have to be fussy about statistics, ecology, as you hear, incidentally, just to um, remind you of this, uh, one of the most suspense-ridden pages in Russian literature. Uh, the crowd gathers, the crowd of Poles mainly, gathers to witness the execution of Taras's older son, Ostap. What follows, or the highlight, the high point of the scene, is one of the most improbable, most magnificently improbable things in Russian literature. There is first this both tense and gruesome, increasingly gruesome description of the tortures inflicted upon a staff as being burned alive. Somewhere along the line, the heroics becomes almost blasphemous, as out of the depth of his anguish, Ostap calls to his father, do you hear me, father? Taras Bulba is right there, in that square. Disguised, he is the big chief, because Ostap was second in command. He is a big chief, and of course, uh, presumably, uh, the entire Polish community, or at least uh, all the Polish authorities, devote uh, allegedly all their energies to finding him, and as the Soviets would say, liquidating him. And now, uh, he is a very fat price, and that's why he's wearing this disguise. But as he hears his son's rhetorical question, in the absolute silence of the square, he booms away, I hear you, son. Now, I mean, uh, there are few scenes which affected me more than this when I was about 11 or 12. Now, it is no reflection, I think, on the artistry. Of this remarkable, if in some ways rather limited novel, that it's, uh, it has a kind of Western type, Superman type improbability, which appeals irresistibly to the young. And of course, this kind of improbability is, as I'm going to mention in a moment, perhaps a hyperbole projected into the plot, and hyperbole become plot event, narrative sequence. Now, but uh, so far, you may say, we've been uh, dealing only with the romantic works of Gogol, where the hyperbole was clearly, almost officially, the central strategy. How about his later satirical works? The language here is no less exuberant, even that the texture and the drift of the hyperbole is quite different. To convey the notion that someone's laughter was loud, Gogol says, as if two oxen had bellowed at the same time. To indicate that someone's mouth was rather big, he compares it to the arch of the general staff building. The, in the memorable scene of Dead Souls, the cumulative effect of the scratching of pens in the administrative offices of the town of N is described thus. The sound thereof was as if several carts loaded with brushwood were being driven through a forest piled with dead leaves a yard deep. 
He shows piled up, piles it up pretty high. Now, at times, uh, parenthetically, the import or the offshoot of the hyperbole is not to magnify, but to diminish, more specifically to point up the smallness, the inadequacy, the inanity of the narrator. This happens when Gogol, uh, um, when hiding behind the mask of a naive and parochial narrator, Gogol raves about things which clearly are not worth raving about. Or in a characteristic formula, protests the inability of his pen to do justice, say, to the elegance and refinement attained by the ladies of the town of N. The hyperbolic urge often spills into plot. Once again, the language calls the tune. I'm sorry, famous crescendo of boasting. You remember the soup straight from Paris and this sort of thing, which is getting as a VIP you know, every day, and then, you know, um, in this um, kind of in the drunken hysteria, he works himself up to the field marshal, you know, from a somewhat less lofty position. And now, Hryevnikov's um, famous monologue is an escalating hyperbole. I mean, I'm Hryevnikov, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why people are it. Hryevnikov's, yes, um, monologue is an escalating hyperbole. Um, Taras Bulba, as I already suggested, uh, the, the whole story about Rasbulba is an extended hyperbole. And it may be said that the plot of Dead Souls is an extended negative hyperbole. Chichikov's fantastic scheme or fantastic racket is neither typical nor probable. It is an extravagantly morbid parody of actual frauds. The same principle of exaggeration, of intensification, is operative at the level of character drawing. Ehlistakov or Sobakevich, indeed any typical Gogolian protagonist, is an embodiment of a single trait, proclivity or foible, extended throughout the personality, pushed to the limit of utter rigidity or absurdity. Stolid Sobakevich, insipid Maniwov, seedy martyr of Greed Plushkin, the blustering bully and braggart Nostrova. Sounds like poor man's goggles with his bees here. Yes, the, the foppish nincompoop in Christakov. And last but not least, that faceless scoundrel, that suave operator Chichikov. All these are single track rows in a masterfully contrived puppet show, rather than full fledged human beings. Frozen in their characteristic poses, gestures of, or grimaces, incapable of movement growth or development, they are more vivid than alive. Thus, to return to our point of departure, they are true denizens of a grotesque universe, whose light motives to quote Kaiser once more, our bodies turned into dolls, automatons, or puppets, and faces frozen into masks. Goya-like masks, rather than faces. We are back to the crucial aspect of the grotesque world, to its uncanny, not quite human quality. We will recall that according to Kaiser, this effect is often due to the absence of a um, firm emotional perspective. 
This in turn raises the question so crucial in Gogol of the narrative tone. <coughs> if in facing some of the grotesque paintings, as Kaiser contends, the viewer fails to get any recognizable cues as to the attitude he should take, I would suggest that in Gogol we often get conflicting cues. The unmotivated, disconcertingly abrupt shifts of tone and mood leave the reader in the lurch. Let me cite two salient examples. The endings of a madman's diary and of the overcoat. Read Sapiski Sumashevichivo. You will recall that in Papristian's last entry, his schizoid delusion, schizophrenic delusion, breaks down with a bang. The king of Spain is forced to face the humiliating and brutalizing reality of an insane, insane asylum. What ensues is a strident cry of anguish, embodied in a truly Gogolian rhetoric, complete with a troika and mother dear. Now, may I quote from what is, I think, uh, probably the finest English rendition of this, I quote from Nabokov's whimsical but interesting essay, quite good. Now, this is, as you recall, the last entry of the Piski Sumachevchevo. This is the cry, or the groan. No, I have not the strength to bear this any longer. God, the things they are doing to me. They pour cold water upon my head. They do not heed me, nor see me, nor listen to me. What have I done to them? Why do they torture me? What do they want of poor me? What can I give them? I have nothing. My strength is gone. I cannot endure all this torture. My head is aflame, and everything spins before my eyes. Save me, someone. Take me away. Give me three steeds, steeds as fast as a whirling wind. Sit yourself, driver, ring out, little harness bell, wing your way up, steeds, and rush me out of this world. On and on, so that nothing be seen of it, nothing. Yonder the sky wheels its clouds, a tiny star glitters afar, a forest sweeps by with its dark trees, and the moon comes in its wake. A silvery grey mist swims below. A musical string twangs in the mist. There is a sea on one hand, there is Italy on the other and now Russian peasant huts can be deserved. Is that my home looking blue in the distance? Is that my mother sitting there at her window? Mother dear, save your poor son. Shed a tear upon his aching head. See how they torture him. Press the poor orphan to your heart. There is no place for him in the whole wide world. He is a hunted creature. Mother dear, take pity on your sick little child. And by the way, gentlemen, do you know that the Bay of Algiers has a round lump grow, had a round lump growing right under his nose? This rather unexpected question ends the entry and with it the diary and the story. Now this could happen only in Gogol or only in a writer like Gogol. The unbearable pity and self-pity peters out into burlesque irrelevance. Our mounting empathy is suddenly frustrated. 
as Kaiser would say, the ground slips from under our feet. Once again, we have stepped into a void. Now for the overcoat, Gogot's finest, most complex, and most widely misinterpreted story. Since time marches on, let me not get off on one of my favorite tangents and bog down in sound of interpretations or misinterpretations, though I very much hope that some of it may come up in the discussion. Once again, I shall not insult you by summarizing the story. Let me drive toward the ending. Two shifts occur in the final portion of Shinyan. There is obviously a sudden change of genre, a semi-comic, semi-pathetic story about a petty clerk, replete with realistic detail, suddenly turns into a ghost story as Akaki Akakievich strikes his long-delayed blow a long-delayed blow for his personal dignity. Yet this intrusion of the fantastic does not necessarily in, in, imply a change of tone. To many readers and critics, I'm afraid I'm not among them, the story was so far until the dust appears, primarily a humanitarian plea for a little man. However unrealistic, is a posthumous appearance of Akaki Akakievich, ideologically it seems in keeping with such an interpretation, because it seems to represent poetic justice, retribution. A compassionate reader cannot help but derive a measure of moral satisfaction from the clerk's belated assertiveness and the well-deserved panic of the arrogant, important person, Yet, as Nabokov correctly points out, before the curtain goes down, at the very end of the story, there occurs another shift which has gone largely unnoticed. <coughs> now, let me quote. Uh, see, um, you know, the, the, the ghost of Akaki Akakievich has been stalking the streets at some point. He, or somebody who looked very much like he, or like his ghost, attacked or confronted, it's not cheating, uh, the big shot was so beastly to him, uh, everything is fine, it's strange, weird, but fine, satisfying. And then, suddenly, this. And indeed, a suburban policeman saw with his own eyes a ghost appear from behind the house, but being by nature something of a weakling. Now then you have a fantastic, particularly uh, uh, long, typically Gogolian, and characteristically irrelevant parenthetical remark or phrase here. <coughs> but being by nature something of a weakling, so that once an ordinary full-grown young pig, which had rushed out of some private house, knocked him off his feet to the great merriment of a group of cab drivers, from whom he demanded and obtained as a penalty for this derision ten coppers from each to buy himself snuff. Closed. He did not venture to stop the ghost, the weekly the policeman that is. He did not venture to stop the ghost, but just kept on walking behind it in the darkness until the ghost suddenly turned, stopped and inquired. What do you want, you? And show the fist of a size rarely met with even among 
rarely met with even among the living. Nothing answered the sentinel and proceeded to go back at once. That ghost, however, was a much taller one and had a large moustache. It was heading apparently towards Obuchov Bridge and presently disappeared completely in the darkness of the night. This is the last we heard about Akaki Akakievich, about the setting in which this weird story is enacted. Once again, the emotional perspective is willfully, indeed frivolously dislodged. A torrent of irrelevant details burst upon what seemed to be a moving story of the insulted and the injured. As the big bully displaced the man whom he wronged and with whom we mm, uh, were finally invited to identify, because clearly this man with the moustache was not Akaki Akakievich. He didn't look like Akaki Akakievich. He looked much more like the bully who stole the overcoat. Whereas the big bully displaces Akaki, we are left in the cold and cheated out at the, at the last moment, cheated out of the emotional satisfaction which we thought was ours. That the overcoat is a much greater and richer story than the straightforward civic tale some of its admirers mistake it for is only too obvious to me. But in all fairness to our humanitarian urges, there is something a bit heartless, in any case not quite human, about the story's bizarre and grotesque finale. No wonder one of the most sensitive Russian critics of Gogol's day, Apawon Grigoryev, find, found the tale frightening. Fear, he said, blood-curdling fear overcomes one when one reads this icy, ruthless, heartless story. Now, I won't go as far as that. I would not say heartless. Any unqualified statement about the overcoat is bound to be wrong. No, I will not say heartless. We all remember, perhaps we remember a little too well because it has been anthologized at the Novium. But we all remember in any case, whether too well or not, the famous so-called humanitarian passage in uh, the, the set piece in Chignel. When already in the early portion of the story, he turns with his detractors, this, this meek and helpless man, and he says with anguish, why do you, what do you want of me? Those were all kind of smart alecky colleagues of his were poking fun at him. What do you want of me? Why do you insult me so? And then, Gogol goes, Gogol narrator, whoever it is, goes off on this kind of almost automatic, if you will, because in such um, passages, it's a conditioned, a stylistic conditioned reflex. He goes off on one of those grandiloquent rhetoric sequences on a kind of an emotionally quivering crescendo. Now, the note of compassion, or I would rather say pity, and the distinction I think is an essential one, is clearly heard. Yet this attitude, toward the very end of the story, when we are ready for it, when we are just about ready to espouse it and enjoy it, is undercut, undermined, and we find ourselves out again in the cold. The last 10 years of Gogol's wildlife saw a series of desperate attempts on the writer's part to escape and or redeem the unbearably vivid 
figments of his grotesque imagination. To escape or redeem them through prayer, self-improvement, and good works. There is much about this period that remains both enigmatic and controversial. Since Gogol destroyed a large part of volume two of Miotrej Dushi, a work which was to be a turning point in his career, a work which was to open a new era, any assessment of his last effort must be very tentative indeed. On balance, the available chapters are a bit better, I think, than some critics or literary historians allowed. But by comparisons with volume one and with Revisor, by comparison with the best of Gogol, they're clearly anticlimactic. Is it because, as was so often said, that Gogol the moralist swallowed up and destroyed Gogol the artist? This, I believe, is something of a simplification. Without going into detail, and I, and I, don't, want, I, I don't want to go into detail since I don't need to close, it was rather because Gogol was trying to do something. In fact, he was, going, he was trying to do two things which apparently went against his grain. One, he set out to portray goodness, indeed, as he put it, to sing a hymn to heavenly beauty. Quite a tall order. Two, in an attempt to portray the white and the gray along with the black, to give a balanced account of a differentiated society, to, picture, to feature change of heart, spiritual transformation, he was clearly endeavoring to eschew a grotesque manner and to reach towards psychological realism. It seems that Gogol's effort at apotheosis was defeated not only by the intrinsic difficulty of the task, but also by the widely noted fact that his personal sense of an imaginative grip on evil was much stronger than was his dim perception of the good. It is a fact, I think, and a tragic one, that the devil was an immediate presence to Gogol, while God, according to the phrase, was the name of his desire, of his vague longing. Two, by the same token, no amount of frantic, if mediated, fact-gathering, you see, during a, a number of years, or quite a few, of Gogol's work, fitful work, on volume two of Dead Souls, years which, as most of you recall, were spent largely away from Russia, Gogol was trying to use, to turn his many correspondence into full-time research assistants. You see, we, he couldn't do a few work himself, or for some reason he wasn't able to. In other words, he, he, was, uh, he required sociological, statistical, indeed socio-economic reports on the, the social condition prevailing in Russia. He, and he would get mad when the letters, which were many, and some which rather informative, put forward a short program. In other words, um, he was trying desperately to bridge two gaps, to bridge the gap between himself, that is not Rome, and Russia. He was also trying to bridge the gap between his own 
whimsical and disheveled imagination and social realities, which for once, and I believe for the first time, he wanted to incorporate en masse into his novel, and he wanted to make a center of his work. No among us are the frantic, if mediated, if indirect fact-gathering could break the gap between the demands of realistic fiction and the natural bent of Gogol's imagination. It seems to me that both things were involved. Not only, as was so often pointed out, that Gogol was embarking on an extremely difficult task. A number of people, a number of writers, including Aldous Huxley, have commented more or less amusingly, more or less perceptively, on the difficulty in presenting a good man. It's much easier to present a crumb than than a truly good man, especially if you want to present a good man rather than a saint. Of course, uh, the Sierski has some favorite problems too. In any case, not only, or if you would have three factors here, not only was Gogol um, embarking on a very difficult thematic or moral tack, not only was he in view of his characteristic endowment, peculiarly unsuited for this task. But he was also, whatever we think, and I won't go into this this moment, whatever we think about the degree of realism achieved in his previous work, and I'm glad to think the degree was rather low, for once Gogol was trying to be, uh, and the students of Russian literature will know what I mean, to be not only an unwitting founder but one of the chartered members of Naturalnaya Shkola. He was trying to produce a socio-realistic fiction. And I wonder, and if, um, if I have a point here, it may not be irrelevant <coughs> to the theme Gogol and the Grotesque, whether one of, of his personal or creative tragedies in those last years was that he was trying to beat, that he was trying to frustrate, to deny the characteristic bent of his genius, which was, in a sense, I'm um, adopting here, grotesque. Whatever the reasons, whatever the factors involved, the unspeakable anguish and misery born out of a profound moral crisis broke Gogol's spirit and sapped his world of life by 1952. His death was almost as strange as his life and I'm not going to get involved in this now. We have more time for such perhaps interesting but rather lurid tales. Let me mention only one thing, which may be completely fortuitous, but few of us, I think, for better or worse, will uh, resist the temptation of reading some symbolism into this episode. It seems, in fact this is attested, some reliable witnesses, that Gogol's last words, very last words, were, a ladder, quick, a ladder. Was it simply a cry of anguish, a Christian-like cry of anguish? De profundis, from the depth of misery and pain, or was this upward gesture or upward thrust 
of the demon-ridden artist, a reaching toward the divine, or perhaps the merely human. Perhaps, since it's time to close, I'd better close on a somewhat more positive note, not only because I have a craving for a happy ending, which I don't, but because a more positive note is in order, after all. If Gogol was tortured, and perhaps as a man defeated beyond reprieve by his grotesque imagination or imaginings, he was also exalted by it. Apparently one of the strangest human beings that ever lived. An anxiety-ridden, lonely, unhappy man. Gogol managed to objectify and to that extent transcend and subdue his private nightmares. And create works which impose themselves upon the reader's imagination, not by virtue of their plausibility, but by the intensity and inner coherence of artistic vision. And as he fashioned out of his uneasy dreams an art which will endure, he proved once more, if proof indeed were needed, that moral and social relevance is no monopoly of realism. Thank you. I expected this magnificent, creative speech and lecture because I am a reader and fervent admirer of our lecturer, but he is not, and I like myself, a passionate viewpoint rather than the moderate, the tepid, both points of view, which is all right for justice, but is not a part of creative writing. But as our lecturer is not only a writer, but an experienced pedagogue, he is willing to listen to any other point of view. And need I say, as many people can speak, so there are as many ideologies on Google. And you know that, frankly, to me, elementary explanation of Google, that it is romanticism through realism leading to religious madness is not yet dead but still exist in our time. But if you like to defend it or express any viewpoint, please do so. But please make your statement short because our time, although I think we have three quarters of an hour, I must have a fair distribution. And as hostess, I'm quite prepared to take only the last morsel. So please. Don't let um, I found the lecture fascinating, a magnificent analysis of Gogol's art and mentality. And I hope I'm not giving away any state secrets by saying that President Ehrlich is engaged on writing a book on Gogol, so we can look forward to a more detailed uh, thesis. I've got two questions and one critical remark. Um, the questions first, then. Surely the Ukrainian tales and their, what you call the mechanism of transformation in these tales, are a common uh, property of all folk lore. There's nothing specifically Gogolian, which gives them a twist, but this is a, all Russian fairy tales, all fairy tales in the world have this mechanism of transformations. 
Um, the second is the Taras Bulba, the magnificent Hyperboles that you mentioned. Um, again, when I read Taras Bulba first, I was fortunate enough to have read, or having read to me, the Iliad by Homer. And there, obviously, these incredible Hyperboles occur in Homer as they do in Gobel. These are questions, these are assertions. I would like to hear what you have to say. The main criticism is directed not against you, Professor Ehrlich, but against the authority that you quoted at the very beginning. Wolfgang Kaiser, whose book I don't know, but the quotation that you gave, his definition of the grotesque, I feel, falls short of your own development. Uh, he, from what you tell us about his book, he seems to be interpreting or explaining the grotesque as sheer lunacy. It is schizophrenia or something like this. The word is a madhouse. The word of a grotesque artist is a madhouse. Well, this is, doesn't lead us anywhere. This is very subjective and uh, um, or rather limited to the subjective imagination or subjective impression and doesn't give us the, any further insight into the um, objective genesis of the grotesque. How can then this world be so incredibly absurd and so on. What makes it so absurd? Any, if you go to a lunatic asylum, you can meet any, uh, any amount of people who live in the world of a grotesque. That doesn't make them a, a goblin yet. Now, and when you began to talk about uh, the intrusion of the demand, that surely is the true clue to the grotesque, and particularly in Google. When you said later on that the devil was an immediate presence to Google, whereas God was only something remote to him. That is the beginning, a starting point for the true interpretation of the grotesque character of the book. I was a bit disappointed that you didn't dwell long enough on this particular aspect, which one, maybe it's not a subject for literary criticism, but rather for something like a theological pedopsychology, something like this, a science like this exists. But that, I hope, will be developed in your book at greater length. This is my only criticism I have to me. Now, Mr. Simeonovich, as for the, from your questions, no, no, I absolutely agree about the Ukrainian tales. And it's true there are, uh, to take us perhaps to far afield at this point, to try to show uh, what outside of uh, style, or perhaps we shouldn't go outside of style because this is maybe most distinctive characteristic, but what in any case in the thematic structure of the Ukrainian tales, of which are, um, that is, um, is uh, characteristically Gogolian. Those st stories were, in a sense, frankly derivative. They were permeated with Ukrainian folklore motifs, and some of them indeed are probably, as uh, students of comparative mythology will tell us, or comparative folklore, uh, Indo-European folklore motifs, and it is the, the devil trade, the witchcraft, you know, those, um, all those spooks and so on, which hop about there, are part of the fairy tale machinery. In fact, this leads me, so um, not on because of that, and for some other reasons, th these tales are in a sense <coughs> less characteristically Gogolian than some of the later ones, by which I mean not only, and here I part ways with uh, Nabokov, because Nabokov is neither amused nor uh, creepified, as it were, nor frightened by the Ukrainian tales. He refused on at Mietayet, so he eliminates everything until the St. Petersburg period. 
now he is, it's uh, his right to do so as a critic, that I don't go along with him, especially because of Mirgard. Mirgard is a fascinating and I think richly rewarding transitional period. And perhaps speaking about this particular, the boundary between the Ukrainian folklore thing, which to Nabokov is sort of a um, kind of a folk opera. Now, anything that smacks a folk or folklore is anathema to Nabokov for obvious reasons. It's much, it's much too aristocratic for this sort of thing. Yes. And so anyway, uh, where the boundary, uh, uh, where uh, the line between folk opera and Gogol is crossed, I think this line is crossed not in the Petersburg period, but already in Mirgrad. And to me, for instance, there is, there is no point in, in, in um, discussing uh, the, the creepifying quality or potential of a story that's entirely a matter of personal taste. I don't, uh, for instance, but speaking about horror, speaking about the gothic or grotesque horror, I can see why Nabokov is, was not uh, frightened by Strashnemis. I find Strashnemis very effective in its own way, but in a sense, it's too, it's kind of a, a highly formalized combination of Ukrainian dume with tik, and the, the very rhythm of the prose almost subsumes the horror. It is V. The fact that Nabokov, not even as a child, I don't believe him, but the fact that Nabokov was never afraid of V is to me a matter of um, not exactly concern, but considerable surprise. V is one of the most Bosch-like, you see this uh, the uh, appearance of V, of this unspeakable Chudovishche, Ungeziefer, as Kaiser would say, is something, uh, one of the most Bosch-like pages in world literature. But the crucially Gogolian thing about it is, and here where we get into the Gogolian grotesque, or in part in the grotesque in general, is that here, why um, Strashnaimis is consistently romantic, here you ha we have a curious tension between the CD and the fantastic. The fantastic in V is more frightening and in a sense more real than it is in Strashna music, the Mirtvitsik Rizul Drug Druga, there's considerable aplomb, because they are, uh, uh, we are propelled into that fantasy, into that morbid, exuberantly morbid fantasy from the world as we know it or uh, so from the city, down to earth, coarse, gossip, of the seminaristi. And it is here, it is in shuttling between these two planes, or in rather perceiving the demonic, perceiving the horror, which, um, which shines through, which shines through the ordinary, that we find Gogol, and that we find Gogol's sense of evil, and Gogol's sense of horror. Now, as to the second question, um, again, I agree with you about Teras Bulba too. Now, actually, the affinity is not just, we are reminded of Homer not only, because the novel is full of Homeric hyperboles or maybe Homeric similes. We all know that the Iliad had a powerful impact on Gogol. Now, the interesting thing is, incidentally, that this impact was operative not only in Gogol's uh, attempt at a Cossack epic, uh, we found this impact, or we found specifically what can be called Homeric similes, in a much different setting, namely in Mjortvei Dushi. I think Nabokov is very good on those extended similes. On this, you see self, uh, on, uh, on uh, these comparisons, which acquire a momentum of its own, 
of their own. And the centrifugal quality of Goro's style or syntax, when one comparison in a kind of mad sort of way leads to another. Now, one could uh, speculate, incidentally, in Taras Bulba, obviously, this is a part of the heroic stance. One could speculate about the function of those Homeric symbols in Yortve Dushi. And one of the things that I have is that here uh, it is uh, the world of dead source is stifling. The world of the source is a little like uh, Plushkin's garden. And this sort of uh, uh, tendency to get away from the story, either upward or sideways, but anyway, to get away from it, to probe and make fluid the boundaries of the narrative, is a search for air. Now, in a, but um, this is, um, again, I'm, I'm digressing a bit. And to return to your point, a very interesting point you made. Now, I think I have been in part, I have a little, uh, I value Kaiser rather highly. And I had considerable trouble selecting for this occasion four or five um, uh, passages, which would be both representative of his position and relevant to what I'm going to say. What you've said now indicates to me that perhaps my emphasis in quoting should have been a little different. There is more emphasis on the demonic, besides the intrusion of the demonic in Kaiser, than I indicated. And it is true that this, um, the notion, which was incidentally Jean-Paul's notion, developed um, as, uh, as I'm told house. This notion is developed in Kaiser, I think, more impressively and more richly than I indicated here. I think it is absolutely essential. And while, of course, um, uh, there is no indication, I think, or no implication in Kaiser that the grotesque uh, worldview implies lunacy, what he is, uh, he's rather indicating two things. One, the grotesque, whatever can be called the grotesque worldview, there is a good Russian word, mira ostuschenie, is the reverse of both the realistic and the rationalistic approach to reality. The notion that, you see, there are certain firm and knowable laws which govern our reality is denied or is undermined the grotesque almost invariably. It is in this sense that uh, the, you have a tall event, event which is a madhouse, figuratively speaking, not which is, uh, in any case, whether it verges on lunacy or not, at each given moment, it is unpredictable and fundamentally un unknowable and perhaps in the modern existential sense somewhat absurd. But one of the crucial elements of irrationalism or irrationality in this disheveled and fluid and frightening world is precisely the demonic, which, as Kaiser rather shrewdly points out toward the end of his book, is both featured or highlighted by the grotesque. In other words, most grotesque writers are, are apparently demon-ridden, apparently demon-ridden people, but by its very artistic gestaltung, by the very artistic embodiment, this, the grotesque becomes both a play with the demonic and an attempt to subdue it by objectifying it. In this respect, as in some others, the difference between the early Dostoevsky and the later Dostoevsky is quite essential. And when I say the um, early Dostoevsky here, I don't mean biedne duty. I mean mainly dvojnik chazajka, this sort of thing. Now, you see, uh, the uh, Dostoevsky Gogol 
is one of the most interesting, the one of the most complex themes in Russian literature has been written about, considerably, and there is a very fine, st fairly recent study by Dietrich Gerhardt. Now, there isn't perhaps very much that we um, can say, as, um, especially briefly, about it that would be new. But um, one thing is obvious. Uh, you see, Dostoevsky uh, was quoted to the effect Squatted again at nauseam, Mefsia Vishli is Potshinieli Gogla. Now, this is, uh, let me not get off on this tangent either. Yes, because I, I think what he meant was, when he meant Fsia, he meant them in Natural Nashkoa, not so much himself as his generation. And he meant the, uh, the overcoat, I feel not as written, but as widely interpreted as a kind of humanitarian plea for the little man. Now, I would say briefly, that biedne ludzi comes much closer to the stated or read into objective of Schinel than does Schinel itself. In this sense, Dostoevsky in Biedne Ludzi picks up a Gogolian theme, but we, he gives it a different twist. And in this sense, Biedne Ludzi is, I think, as much a polemic with Gogol as an imitation of Gogol. But this is not that the train which is being here, de uh, being developed polemically otherwise, is not the grotesque strain. But the eerie Petersburg in Dvajnik, in general the problem of madness, the turmoil, the both stylistic and thematic and mental turmoil of Dvajnik is Gogolian and is to a large extent grotesque. Now the, you have, of course, many echoes of the romantic uh, grotesque of Gogol's, I would say, in Khazyaika. Uh, obviously, Dostoevsky gets away from this sort of thing in his later works. I would say, I don't think it is, um, it would be very helpful, and I don't think you suggest that, to describe the bulk of Dostoevsky's work in those terms. There is one striking affinity with a Gogolian demonology, however, with a Gogolian sense of evil in Dostoevsky's image of the devil. The devil, as and again on this, Nabokov is as eloquent, as anyone, has been the devil as an embodiment of poshwist, the, 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 the milky bies, as Sorgov would say, the deglamorized de devil, not a Mephistopheles by any means, but a, a sort of uh, this uh, ch cheesy, vulgar, cheap, devil who uh, insidiously infiltrates uh, our every waking hour. This is the devil of Gogol, and this is the devil of Ivan Karamazov. Now, there, are, there is a great deal that could be said along with those signs, I'm sure. The difference, again, I was going to uh, get in, uh, involved because it's an extremely tricky matter. In uh, Gogol the thinker, too much here, 
But um, the obvious difference, whether we agree with Tolstoy, and again, I think what he said, the small fearful mind is, is a half-truth. Whether we agree with Tolstoy completely or not, the difference in intellectual caliber uh, between uh, Gogol and Dostoevsky, and I'm using intellect in a strict sense of the word, is obvious. Yet, I think uh, it is also obvious, and I'm not saying that there is necessarily a connection between the two, that Gogol has, that Dostoevsky, both as an artist and a, th a thinker, has transcended the merely or purely grotesque stance. <coughs> Dostoevsky, the thinker, why he is, he, um, for instance, his short is a Gogolian and, in a sense, grotesque. But, of course, he is uh, he's brilliantly mimicked. And, as a matter of fact, you see it is mimicry. Gogol was the greatest mimic and impersonator in Russian literature. Nobody has ever, could ever mimic somebody's language, somebody's mannerisms as well as, as uh, Gogol. Now, of course, what uh, Dostoevsky cannot so much mimic, because this can be done by mimic, but convey is an intellectual, spiritual dialectics of an Ivan Karamazov. But this obviously goes beyond the grotesque. I, more broadly, I wonder what, uh, and this is not necessarily an attempt I'm very much I'm very excited about the notion of the grotesque, and I think, it's, uh, I think that the grotesque strain in art and literature has been very fertile. But I wonder, in a way, how much of an intellectual system can one build into any grotesque structure. Incidentally, now, this is, I would say, um, this is a very preliminary feeling of mine. I can, could change my mind in a couple of weeks. But at this moment, I feel the grotesque in art as a worldview to be as, again, I like this Russian word, mirror ashtushchenia, as a certain sense of the world, as a certain feel of the world. Now, for instance, to the extent that it means not necessarily lunacy, and Mr. Frank is quite right there, but it means a sense of the uh, absurd. Now, it is very nicely conveyed, in the, um, very ironically conveyed, in the deliberately inane mumbling of uh, the narrator in Nos. Now, this is, I meant to mention it, as a matter of fact, in my talk, but I, it's one of the many things I eliminated. Now, you see, uh, when he starts, the narrator, again, one of those uh, acts of mimicry, one of, the, uh, Gogol, one of Gogol's many verbal masks, the man who tells the story, especially today, is clearly not Gogol. He, he's, uh, he's an idiot, I mean, or he's a half-idiot, yes. And he's kind of a local yokel who scratches his head, you know, and, uh, and rambles. And nobody can ramble as well as Gogol. Or can, no, nobody can mimic rambling, hemming and hoeing, inarticulateness, inanity, as well as Gogol. Now, you see, to so this man says, as he scratches his head, it is a strange, a strange event has occurred. I mean, the event is just related. Now he says, then, such things happen, though, thank God, they happen seldom. And then now, a little earlier, he says, in an aside, Strange things happen in our city. Sometimes there is no plausible, implausible things happen in our city. Sometimes there is no plausibility whatsoever. In the world, that is. Now, the notion of which, for instance, Kafka, whose name is not altogether irrelevant here, the notion of which is voiced in the adventures of a dog by Kafka, the phrase, this senseless world. Now, this is the core of the grotesque of life. Now, to uh, 
Obviously, there are a number of very sophisticated uh, philosophers. I mean, whether they are great philosophers or simply very articulate men is a moot question. But there are a number of very sophisticated French atheists today who elaborate the notion of the absurd rather effectively. But again, why I sometimes find myself in considerable sympathy with this notion, uh, in greater sympathy than I do with straight rationalism, the question is, now for instance, when Camus speaks about the absurd, it is, he uses a phrase to discuss, and in a sense, an impossible or precarious moral situation. And then he's talking about something else again. But of course, this very feeling, I feel, and that is, in other words, this particular Weltgefühl or Mirage can be conveyed, it can be dramatized much better than it can be systematized, I think. There are no questions. I shall certainly not abuse of my position and ask only two short questions. The first is based on very popular and very well-known fact to everyone. We all know the adoration of Gogol, of Gogol, of Pushkin. We know that Pushkin gave, of course, the idea of the dead souls, and that first of all, Gogol rushed to Pushkin to read him. And every time Pushkin roared with laughter. And when Gogol brought to Pushkin the first chapters and started to read the dead souls, suddenly Pushkin uttered the well-known words, my God, how sad is our Russia. Now, I wanted, of course, only the interpretation of our lecture, because that is the main point. Gogol commented himself. He was flabbergasted at this attitude of Pushkin and, say, and said, he has written, but I meant it all to be comic. Therefore, my question is, did, and Gogol said more than one occasion that the only man who understood what he meant was Pushkin with all the men's contrast, the sun, the light, and this torture. So how do you un interpret it? This understanding of Pushkin, which Gogol didn't grasp. No, but he did say, um, uh, didn't you say, that he, laid, uh, he thought that it was a very insightful reaction, that, he was, that Gogol was quite impressed. Yes, but he was astonished because he, was astonished. he meant it to be comic. And instead of bursting into laughter, uh, Pushkin uttered this sadness, which to me was the deepest insight into an opposite nature, into Gogol's genius. That's how I understand it. Would you agree? Absolutely, yes. Now, I think there are some, uh, there are quite a few references in Gogol, though I, thus, there are a number of skeptics, as you probably know, uh, especially uh, nowadays, a number of people who feel that this uh, a close relationship between Pushkin and Gogol is something of a myth, or that the relationship, in, in fact, was much less close than some historians or myth-makers made it. Now, there is something to that, I feel. In other words, I'm not uh, even absolutely sure, but that is what Gogol said, uh, what Pushkin said, but I assume he did. And I think, uh, and I can see his point, as Gogol did, uh, 
again, um, there are so many difficulties, and in fact, I find it, I keep finding it out, as I'm not, I'm not writing this book yet, but I'm reading toward it. I'm reading uh, letters of Gogol's, and I witness testimony, what the old kind of people said about each other and about yes. Gogol, about what Gogol said to them. There's so many contradictions, and there are so many also contradictions in Gogol's own testimony. And there is so much occasional slyness and deviousness that, for instance, when Gogol said that he was stunned, I'm not always sure he was. In any case, this is, um, Dead Souls is a comic masterpiece of its kind. But it's, uh, I think it's a grotesque masterpiece. And in this, again, Kaiser or no Kaiser, there is always some sadness is perhaps a matter of word but something depressing, disturbing, ugly, indeed monsters lurking in uh, such a um, comedy. And of course, Gogol himself, though with some delay, described the first volume of Mjortwe Dusy and then said he wants to get away from this as Zboriście Urodov. Now the panopticum, you know, a collection of monsters, obviously monsters, in this, but this can happen only in a grotesque painting only in a grotesque world, can be both ludicrous in, and at times funny and uh, depressing. Now, of course, uh, um, Dead Souls, uh, the first volume of Dead Souls is at times, is comic and sometimes uh, extremely so. For instance, almost in a farcical sort of way, you remember the Dama Priyatne and Dama Priyatne of Sihadnoshenia. Now, this is a dialogue which is strictly in the tr revisor tradition. I mean, this is comedy if I ever saw it. But when all is said and done, there is so much push waste. There is, you know, and, uh, there is so much inanity. There is so much moral smallness and ugliness in all this that one cannot help but be saddened by it. This, I think, what Pushkin sensed in the novel, and rightly so. My only uh, partial disagreement would be along some of different lines. Now, uh, that uh, Pushkin said, uh, my God, how sad is our Russia. Now, the settings are Russian, and also are some of the characteristic uh, the char uh, inanities. Again, to say that Gogol is a, let me get this out of my system. To say that Gogol is a grotesque artist is not to say that what he is uh, portraying bears no definable relation to reality. As a matter of fact, caricature, realism is only one way of portraying reality, of dealing with reality. Ex um, exuberant exaggeration of the actual, while not accurate, and thus, I would think it would be a bad idea to write the history of Russia in the 1830s on the basis of Gogol. Why not accurate can be revealing in that it dramatizes something which really exists. This is also part, I think, Pushkin's meaning. He, again, the, uh, the smallness of a Karobochka, the acquisitiveness of a Chichikov, the venality of uh, the small town uh, and stupidity an abysmal parochial inanity of a small-town Russian official was not dreamed up by Gogol. It was only tremendously magnified by him. And when Pushkin looked at this distorting and yet revealing mirror, he was shocked and depressed. But uh, to that extent, he was right, both talking in talking about Russia and in expressing his sadness, where I think some of the critics who made a little too much of it, went wrong, and Bilinski was one of them. 
is that they viewed that source primarily as a mirror of so-called Russian realities. Gogol's satire is cosmic in its intent and scope, is cosmic rather than national. I'm reminded of a very striking statement of Edgar Allan Poe <coughs> regarding his Gothic tales whose settings are uh, German castles. Their horrors are not of Germany, but of the souls. The most essential horrors revealed in Mjortwe Dusche are not of Russia, but the soul, of the soul, of Gogol's soul, and of the human soul, if you will. But that's their greatness. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, but I feel, in other words, what we need is, this makes, to me, this makes Gogol greater than had he been a bitter boy beside him. Yeah, what? Yeah. You say Oh, yes. What I wanted to say, you said that he gives no lead. He gives this tremendous hatred of, of Plushkin, tremendous contempt for Sobakevich. He gives us incredible laughter about Manilov. He, know, he shows us what we hate in order that we should know it reveals to us what we love. It seems to be an absolutely positive statement right through Gogol. Mad or no mad, it doesn't matter. He had a soul that longed for that and saw the hideousness of, of everything around him. Seems to be incredibly true, revealing and instructive in a way. Certainly. No, one of what? This applies to all character to Charles Adams, does exactly Absolutely, absolutely. But not to the greatness you see, what I really must, must reproach our wonderful lecturer with is that he not once said the word genius, which does describe Gogol. The greatness of his imagery is such that a completely new world is revealed and we have a new point of view on everything that we no. have seen before. Perhaps the statistics is beside the point. I think I said genius at least twice. But if I hadn't, now my, of course, when I just speak about the nature of his genius, now, but uh, let me say, if I haven't made it clear, that I consider Gogol not one, uh, let's make it absolutely clear. Uh, you see, uh, where there are various ways in which we can admire writers, there are various grounds on which we do so. Gogol is not the profoundest Russian writer. I think Dostoevsky is that. Yes. I think he's deeper, uh, he's not greater than Tolstoy, but he's deeper than Tolstoy. He, um, he is, yes, yes, he is not, he is not one of the most insightful Russian writers, in other words, he's not the greatest psychologist in Russian fiction, both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are those. Now, but he was, he is to me, and I, if I may say personally, I've been fascinated by Gogol ever since I was seven, so from my point of view, this book is a rather belated, will be a rather belated tribute to my fascination. To me, he is the most compelling and spellbinding writer in Russia. You see, the point is, and this is precisely, now I'm not being anti-realistic, though I'm a little tired of some people who are pro-realistic. But you see, uh, what, uh, when I said that relevance, moral social relevance is no monopoly of realism, I could say even truth, not in the sense of accuracy, which is not the poet's job, really, we can find accuracy elsewhere, but truth in a sense of dramatized body of reality. Yeah, yeah. You see, truth is, can be gleaned from a, a non-realist as much as from the realist. What we need is a, a grip, an imaginative grip, even on one 
uh, doesn't have to be, you don't have to be Dostoevsky or Shakespeare, an imaginative grip even on one essential aspect of human psyche, and genius. Genius is its ability to dramatize, ability to make vivid light. what you feel. Well, to light. Precisely. Precisely. Now, vivid, I, uh, this was no, I even meant to... Um, and so this is a parenthetical remark, but I shall do so now. For there was a very interesting, to me, a, an extremely important moment in the history of Gogol criticism. It was an essay of Rosanov, which appeared, as a matter of fact, as kind of, a, of an ambivalent, if not sour, postscriptum to his admiring and insightful analysis of Legenda Vidicum Inquisitoria. Now, in this, it's interesting that, that Rosanov couldn't kiss Dostoevsky goodbye as a subject without paying an ambivalent homage to Gogol. The homage was very ambivalent indeed, and unnecessarily so. Rosanov was one of the first people who was speaking about the deadness of Gogol's characters, who was speaking about Maski. I think he was right. He was right in one sense, well, he was wrong, he said he was sour about it. That he was saying, in effect, here, look at the rich. Uh, well-rounded, so beautifully dramatized uh, characters in Dostoevsky, and look at the, at the Gogol's puppets. Now, there is absolutely no point in, uh, in uh, accusing an artist, being a Bosch, a Goya, or a Gogol, of dealing in masks. Mas this is a very respectable and a very powerful artistic tradition. There is no point in accusing him of failing to portray so-called well-rounded characters. We can accuse him of that only if he sets out to do so. But this, uh, if one doesn't operate in a tradition of which I would call broadly psychological realism, and if one sets out to illuminate and reveal through exaggeration, then one can yield truth, a truth which will endure every bit as long as the other kind of truth because it's um, of, or longer than some uh, realistic, so-called realistic portrayals, because it has the... Uh, it has a vision. It has a unique vision, a new vision, and because it's embodied in death this world. Show me your watch. I'm not sure of mine. What's the time? What's the time? Uh, uh, what, uh, to all what you said. Uh, this, this is uh, the most revealing letter of Gogol uh, himself about his creation, where he speaks that uh, he uh, created um, uh, simply to take, uh, he, uh, he took imli, simply uh, his own vices uh, and to put them uh, in, in uh, like uh, human personality. It is uh, very important in uh, addition to all what we said. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. But he painted himself in all these people. No, 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 but uh, you, you should tell about this. Yes. No, no, you're absolutely right. In other words, again, Gogol perhaps overstated this point a bit, and Piripiska, Vibrony, Mistais Piripiski z Ruziami, because he was soft peddling some other aspect of his satire. But I think when we try to give a balanced account of Gogol's satire without taking sides, sort of too dramatically, I think it's fair to say that it, has, it had three levels. 
It had, most importantly, I think, the cosmic or universal level. It was a criticism of man. It had, though I think this didn't room too large in Gogol's intentions, it roomed much larger in Bidinsky's ideology, but it was in its effect also a social dimension. Because uh, wittingly or unwittingly, Gogol managed to dramatize, uh, to illuminate some of the social evils in Russia. But it also had an introspective dimension. In other words, and, and perhaps the introspective and the cosmic are closely interrelated. Because some of Gogol's, not Prazrinia, some of Gogol's epiphanies, uh, some of uh, which were perhaps more intense and profound, but anyway remarkably significant, some of Gogol's epiphanies were uh, arrived through introspection and through the kind of ruthless and I would say almost masochistic self-criticism in which he engaged during the last 10 or 15 years of his life. As it is, I think, approaching the time, I forego sophistically my question, which I can put privately. And I must say that to me, these two lectures which we had on Monday by Professor Zimmer on Dostoevsky and tonight's lecture are represented a diptych of our two greatest writers. Of course, I leave the national saint, patron saint outside. <laughs> Only as a great impact on European art and letters. And if to some of you, of you, some of the views may be found extreme, I can only tell you that this is a very old discussion. I only quote two opinions. One, a critic whom I respect is one of the greatest Soviet critics in the 20s, Peter Kogan. And he said, all this phantasmagory of Gogol, this is the past. We are interested only in the present social problems. And the famous Slavyanophil Komyakov said, Gogol belongs to the future. He will only be understood later. And already we see the impact. I don't know whether you have seen that play to me, the best play of our John Osborne, Inadmissible Evidence. The monologue is absolutely one of publishers. And I think that those two lectures only show, anyhow, they show to me still so much of ignorance and so much to learn that it was to myself a pure delight and a very great lesson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pushkin House podcast brought to you by the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre. This episode was recorded live at Pushkin House in Labrick Grove in the 1960s and was archived by Anastasia Karo, digitised by Andrei Levitsky and was edited and produced at Pushkin House by me, Rafi Hay. For more archive recordings, please make sure to subscribe to the Pushkin House podcast and for some more modern content which continues this strain of rigorous intellectual searching, make sure to check out our blog and keep an eye on our upcoming events. Thanks for listening.